Hello friends, freaks, nerds, and geeks, all those of you unabashedly burning in the ephemeral flames of existence right alongside me. I'm your host, Jay Van Veen, and you're listening to Why Did You Make Me Read This, your weekly comic book podcast. The year is 1995. Little Jay is 11 years old. He spends his free time playing Earthbound on Super Nintendo, his nose often in a Redwall or Goosebumps book. He is fully obsessed with the ongoing Age of Apocalypse event in Marvel comic books. Weekends are for playing Dungeons and Dragons with his buddies, staying up late into the wee hours of the morn, elbows deep in righteously nerdy fantasy escapism. One Friday, through some deft maneuvering, his buddies and him get their grubby little mitts on a recently released copy of an R-rated VHS. The cover, a gothic setting, with a man in face paint, long black hair, all-black outfit, mid-stride looking badass as can be to some young 90s preteens kids. Dude looks like he walked straight out of a comic book. The boys watch it, wordless, engrossed in the film's characters and violence and soundtrack and setting. They tacitly agree to forego the night's planned D&D session, to rewind the tape and play it again instantly. And then, a third time after that. The encroaching pale light of the morn indicating to them that it's probably a good idea to climb into their sleeping bags. The next night, catching up on their Miss D&D session, they all want to change their characters to something darker. Something with swords, and face paint, and cloaks. The deep impression made by the film an obvious hangover in the days to come. It wasn't until about a decade later that I'd pick up the dark indie comic that served as the source material for one of my formative films. Today, a pale horse rides, a blackbird flies, an innocent girl dies. Today, we talk about The Crow. Crow was created, written, and drawn by James Obar. Okay, guys, before we start, I'm going to do things a little differently for this episode, maybe going down into the future too. I'm not sure yet. Usually, I run a straight path down the linear narrative of a story, detailing the pertinent plot points while highlighting enjoyable dialogue or humorous sequences, pretty much anything I get a kick out of, really. But today, Today, I feel like meandering. I'm going to pop in and out of the story, giving a general idea of the plot, but trying to hit on more of a feeling permeating the book. Still selecting scenes for emphasis and dialogue for recognition, but not playing it out like my own low-rent, bootleg, weirdo, funny book version of Masterpiece Theater. I mean, I still might do that shit too, but I'm experimenting here, guys. I also want to give some more peripheral information such as the creator's backgrounds and materials that might have influenced the creations I'm talking about. Trying some new things out, because why the hell not? James O'Barr, the fellow that created The Crow, was born in Detroit, Michigan. Fellow Michigan boy, I like him already. O'Barr wrote The Crow in the 80s after his fiancée was killed by a drunk driver. He was trying to come to terms with death, and his own anger revolving around the incident. He said that 
he didn't write the story for anybody but himself, but that in the end it didn't have the intended effect of catharsis. Actually, the contrary happened as he found himself being brought down a darker mindset as the book came to fruition. And you can see that in the pages of the book because it is indeed a dark story. Obar's personal influences run prominent throughout the pages of this popular indie comic. A gothic splash page of The Crow posing is accompanied by a full lyric printout of a Cure song. The Crow himself questions a gangbanger about if he's read Milton or not, having also quoted Nietzsche at that same character earlier in the book. Poems from English writer Rose Fileman and French poet Arthur Rimbaud turn up under solemn and forlorn illustrations that seem almost like photographs. Obar's own melancholy poetry appears between pages, suspended alone against solid black backgrounds, his heartbreak apparent throughout the story being prominently displayed in these printed interludes. This comic is colorless, the pages hanging heavy with dark ink that make the book feel like you're running through the shadows, almost a perpetual night in a world of black and white except a few flashback scenes or visits to some ethereal perdition, where the heavy ink gives way to a lighter feel of pencils and minimalism, sometimes used to create the warmer glow of a safer space, breaking the harrowing narrative, and sometimes used to amplify the unease, making you realize that you've left the world of the living and are in that liminal space between life and death. The story of the crow is that of a gritty, modern, gothic fantasy. It takes place in Obar's hometown of Detroit, where the streets run rampant with scumbags, murderers, gangbangers, and lowlifes. A real poverty emerges from the pages. It's a place where hope was long ago left behind, malice and savagery emerging in its stead. A place where life is cheap, drugs and money run the scene, and it's violent. You best believe it's violent. Actually, Obar himself stated that most of the violence in the book is implied, and he could never come close to recreating the violence of the real world. And that's kind of true to an extent. I mean, we don't actually see T-Bird getting beaten to death with a hammer. We don't actually see the crow making Shelby the giant eat his own fingers. We only indirectly see the violations of Shelley getting stomped, shot, brutalized, and abused on the side of the road. But we do see a lot of people getting shot in the head, throat slit, people getting stabbed, blasted with a shotgun, getting their teeth knocked out, getting their head smashed into a wall. There is no shortage of murder in this. The Crow is not a superhero. He is a specter anti-hero. Obar goes on to say that the Crow recognizes what he is. He brings about his own redemption by admitting his sins to himself. He's justified in his revenge murders, but by doing so, he is no better than the people he is murdering. That's what this story is. A revenge saga told by a man who was desperately trying to make sense of the tragic death of his fiancée. An exploration of death through the lens of a young, intelligent, blue-collar guy from the Motor City. And with all that said, let's talk about the guts of this damn thing for a little bit. The copy of the comic I have is a reprinted trade paperback that came out in about 2002. I don't know if it varies greatly or at all from the original issues as they came out, but it's what I got, so it's what I'm going off. The story itself is comprised of five individual comics titled Pain, Fear, 
irony, despair, and death. But there seems to be some subchapters within these. Captions like, Watching Forever, Looking Down the Cross, Gravity, and my personal favorite, Hammer Party, appear on pages like titles. But I'm not sure if they're supposed to be titles or, or subtitles, breaking up portions of the book, or if they're just placed there for an emphasis of mood or to function a little bit more in the avant-garde aesthetic that Obar creates here. And if that's what he's doing, he continues that trend, sometimes giving the comic book a zine type of undertone. Like I said, there are random pages containing poetry or song lyrics that exist suspended from the story altogether. Art style changes up, Font exists on pages in the abstract, not contained within word balloons or functioning as dialogue. Different languages underpin portrait-style single panels that have nothing to do with the story itself. You're pulled in and out of a linear plot thread, but with the added effect of building a current of grief and goth and love and death. But smashing through all the morbid, artful pageantry is the grim revenge tale of a man named Eric. We find out immediately that Eric is more than just a man with face paint who dresses like a swashbuckling Humphrey Bogart playing backup for the cure. From the onset of the story, we know two things. The crow is invincible, and he's hunting down some men, vengeance his prerogative. This is speculative, but I get the feeling reading this that Obar's occasionally unabashedly inserting himself into the pages. There are several scenes of the crow alone remembering the days of when he was alive with his girlfriend Shelley and the small moments that they had together. The crow sits and cries his eyes out sometimes, holding his head in his hands or lying on the floor. Sometimes he takes out a razor and cuts his wrists. Sometimes he breaks windows and screams, and sometimes smiling as he weeps, remembering those little things that add up to his everything. I think... Obar is just bleeding himself into the inks of this book. And along with that grief comes pure and potent violence. We the readers know that this man, this phantom that is the crow, had his one true love ripped out of this world. But we won't find out how violently that happened until much later in the book. As for the men he's dispatching, they start to piece together who he is as he takes them down one by one. Five men were involved in the murder of Shelley. Shelley was the lover of Eric's, and Eric was the crow when he was alive. These men are Tintin, Tom Tom, Top Dollar, Fun Boy, and T-Bird. They're all neck deep in Detroit street crime, and the crow is systematically hunting them down and executing anyone who gets in his way. He shoots Tintin dead in an alley. He shoots Top Dollar in the face, also killing the other hoods that were in the room around him. He chops Tom Tom's legs off in a basement, letting him bleed out. And then there's a pretty good chunk of the story where he's just on the pursuit for T-Bird, who's kind of the big bad of this tale, the man that instigated the whole thing and seems to be higher up in the gangster hierarchy of the Motor City streets. One thing I find interesting is a relationship that happens between the crow and the character of Fun Boy. Funboy is a junkie. Funboy also seems to be the one member of this pirate crew that is capable of reflection. Although not remorseful, he recognizes that he is indeed a monster. The crow, a monster himself in some ways, takes time to converse with this man. 
using him to collect more gangsters together so he can up the kill count and ultimately track down T-Bird. But Funboy doesn't get a violent death like his counterparts. Although we hear Funboy talk about some of the horrible things he's done in his life, the crow offers him a quick and clean death if he cooperates in the hunt for T-Bird. Ultimately, Funboy's death comes from his own hands and his own habit. The crow tells him to shoot up everything he has, and Funboy overdoses. But not before he says something curious. Listen, I can't say why I done the shit I done. I wish I could say I'm sorry, but I ain't. I'm a monster burning from the inside. Obedience is submission, veiled with gravity. I never let nothing define me or limit me. And it's stuff like that that makes this book stick out to me. You wouldn't expect a degenerate outlaw to articulate himself in such a philosophical manner. And this is when the crow asks him if he's ever read Milton, after telling him that his sins on earth will be between him and God. And as much as this comic takes its inspiration from contemporary subculture, gothic poetry, and classical myth and philosophy, it also does have a strain of Judeo-Christianity running steadily throughout it. When confronted earlier with the fact that he should be dead, the crow says, I saw the dead, small and great before God. I saw the blood of Christ on their skins. In the same scene where Funboy dies, the crow takes out a knife and cuts a crown of thorns into his own chest. And then as a message to the other gangsters he's soon to kill, he writes on the wall with his own blood, I know why Jesus wept, motherfucker. And in the most salient case of Christian injection into the bleak panels is when the crow enters a bar full of baddies ready for war. There's a few close-up panels on the face of a European-looking Jesus silently interjected between panels of abhorrent violence as the crow murders the room full of men. Anger, religion, grief, philosophy, violence, death, art. This book is a concoction of a young mind reeling from tragedy. While on his conquest, the crow offers up his own dialogue, a mixture of pithy 80s action hero tough guy talk and the confused poetry of the damned. When a villain discovers the crow lying in wait outside of a window, he asks, Who the hell are you? And the crow responds, Santa Claus. And you've all been very bad this year, before summarily assassinating the whole lot of them. And so, you know, there is that kind of stuff going on. Later, he introduces himself to a street punk by saying, I am he who can dissolve the terror of being a man and go amongst the dead. I am morphine for a wooden leg. Which, I won't lie, I don't understand what that means. I'm guessing Obar might have just thought it sounded cool. And there is honestly a fair amount of that in this book. What a young man thinks is cool and tough sounding. What a certain Jay Van Veen thought was super cool when he himself was a young man. But now, seen through the maturated lens of retrospect, it's a little fatuous. The words of this book are a mixed bag. Comic book dialogue mixed with personal poetry, raw emotion hung in captions, some decorated exposition. The story, though, is straightforward. Retaliation made manifest by supernatural forces. It's the pacing and the presentation that keep the book as a whole something exceptional. The interweaving of metaphorical dream sequences like Eric being stuck on a train, watching a white horse in the country setting outside blindly run into barbed wire, being ravaged bloody, 
and then a skeletal death in a conductor outfit asking him for his ticket. But the momentum of the crow's quest itself keeps action ever-present as the story plays out. And for all the bloody conquest present in this revenge story, we don't discover the details of its genesis until issue 4 out of 5. This is going to get a little bit rough here for a minute, guys. I'm not going to lie. Skip ahead if you don't want to hear what happened to Eric and Shelley on the side of the road in the outskirts of Detroit. I honestly won't blame you. Eric and Shelley head out into the country, celebrating their recent engagement. On the way back in, their car breaks down. Eric's outside, trying to fix the engine as the ominous headlights of a speeding car make their way onto the scene. The car stops and five men get out to see what hell they can bring today. A gun is leveled against Eric's head, and he looks up to see the silhouette of a massive crow in the sky rising like a phoenix. That crow is made manifest into a more corporeal form as Eric is shot in the head. It stands by his side and whispers into his ear, It's okay. It's not your fault. And then pleads with Eric, Don't do this. Don't look. And look at what? <sighs> these five men, these scumbag, low-life bastard Detroit gangsters, drag Shelley out of the car, gang raper, stomp her face in, shoot her in the head, and then Funboy even goes as far as to keep going, if you know what I mean, after she's dead. Something pure meeting absolute savagery. A pale horse wound in a thread of razor wire. A desire for revenge made manifest. And so I know that's a trope, right? The male protagonist motivation coming from the death and or sexual victimization of his lover. How many times over and over have we seen that plot reiterated? The exploitation of a female character and the service of a plot device. The woman existing pretty much just to bleed out. The morning man sent down a righteous path of retribution visiting violence on the perpetrators. I can see why it pisses people off, why women roll their eyes at this and demand better for female characters in any and all mediums. I can also see a young man trying to make sense of the random devastation introduced into his own life, crafting a story such as this for catharsis, looking desperately for answers, or at least something to make the hurt go away a little bit. Where does this story fall down and all that? Is it a fine line? Is it a definite cut? Does it fall down either side of it? Is it a blend of everything? I don't know. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm just here to tell you the story. And I could keep going, guys. You know me. There's still a lot to explore in this book. We could delve into some of the poetry. There's a lot more interesting dialogue we could pick apart. There's a subplot where the crow kind of becomes a savior figure for this young little girl showing us that he's not a complete monster, that he does have some kind of connection left to the living. But I'm also trying to start keeping these episodes a little bit shorter. So I just got a few more things for you, and then I'll let you get gone. One criticism I do have about this book is that the artwork is a little amateurish in terms of anatomical composition or spatial relationships. But the panel layouts kick ass. The storytelling sequency sets a great pace, particularly with the action parts. And I'll also admit that some of the artwork in here is just super badass. We see the crow walking away from a burning building, a gun in each hand, 
a cat on his shoulder, a stoic look covering his painted face, and giant letters prominently featuring the words Hammer Party and horror movie font behind him. And it's a double splash page. Come on, that shit is awesome. Later, there's a small close-up panel with that phoenix crow silhouette dancing across the lenses of T-Bird's sunglasses as he realizes his fate. There's another one where we get this close-up on the crow's painted face as he's just tied a bullet shell in his hair, marking the first of five deaths, looking feminine and masculine in equal measure, a different type of comic book character. And that's another thing. The crow, he's this big muscle-bound guy, six foot five, completely ripped, but he displays these super graceful movements like that of a ballet dancer, and he has these elegant and feminine facial features, tying him into the ancient tales of various world gods, and I have to stop or I'll just keep going. I have to stop or I'll just keep going. To end this episode, I'm going to read a portion of the foreword to this collective edition that I have written by an artist and a friend of Obar's named John Bergen. Bergen introduces the comic and his friend by writing this. Quote, James did this book because he died inside, but found he was still breathing. The crow comes from some lonely void far beyond pain, sorrow, and words. This book you are holding was a place for James to put all the rage and anger he felt at having someone he loved torn away. And it is an attempt to find order and justice where there is none. For some things, there is no forgiveness. Absolutely none. That hard fact is impossible to learn to live with. The event, the split second of time that brought you into this lonely place, cannot be forgiven. No matter how inevitable it was, it took away the future, and it ended everything, except for this, the emotional inertia of a relationship. That is forever, and it is all that you have left. Learn to live with that. Influence it. Access it. James wrote a love letter called The Crow, the most beautiful love letter I have ever read. A dream, a vision, and a real place to recover something that was lost. Okay, guys, so this was my first episode doing things in a bit of a different style. Like I said, I'm just trying to explore a little, see if I can mature and develop the show as I go along. If you like this better or worse or just the same as previous episodes, I'd love to know. Compliments and criticisms will both be met with open arms. It would be wonderful if you could help me out on social media as well sharing episodes, following me on Twitter or Facebook. If you could even take the time to give the show a rating on iTunes, that would be great. And if you could go even just one step further and write a little short sentence review, that would be just monumentally helpful. Still trying to grow, still trying to find my voice, still just wanting to share my love of comic books. You've probably noticed the new music on the episode. That's thanks to my friend RJ Jones, who you can find on YouTube. A-R-J-A-Y Jones. Follow me on Twitter at WhyDidYouComics. 
I still have no clue what I'm doing on there. And or search the name of the podcast on Facebook. You can email me if you'd want any questions or comments. Just hit me up. Why did you make me read this at gmail.com? Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.